talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Ontario's top doctor has announced the mask mandate will expire on Saturday. Of course you can still wear one. You just can't yell at everyone who isn't. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Dave Woodard in the newsroom. Another jam-packed show today. I'm just, I'm just opening my email here, and I've already got a note from Roman on gas prices. We'll get to that in just a sec. Uh, I know. I hear you, Roman. I hear you. Uh, it, it's still the uh, the talk for everybody except uh, the prime minister, who got on his fly, uh, private jet and flew to uh, L.A. and is uh, signing one of those big Donald Trump kind of like you know. I remember Donald Trump was always signing stuff and a sharpie with a great big looks like they got a menu from a restaurant from a fine dining restaurant you know leather bound and stuff looks like they're opening up a menu and signing it well he that's what justin trudeau's doing now just like donald trump down in uh uh, in uh, California with the governor there, uh, some sort of climate agreement that's going to save the planet. Well, we all starve to death because uh, the price of fuel is killing us. Uh, it's fascinating to see the, um, the the difference in interest here. Uh, while people are complaining and upset, uh, that's when the prime minister jets out of town and, uh, and, and starts signing things in front of the cameras for more photo ops and such. It was interesting. I was watching a commentary... Um, uh, from former uh from thomas Mulcair, former leader of the ndp and he uh he uh was very much attacking the prime minister for ignoring what he called quote the nuts and bolts of governing and instead is uh jet setting and and doing photo ops and he knows exactly what is going on but he doesn't want to address it because it conflicts with his climate change driven agenda which we all we all agree that the climate is something that we've got to be addressing. However, uh, there's other issues uh, right now that are more pressing, including the shortage of energy and clean Canadian energy that could be saving the rest of the world. And there's JT jumping into it. I wonder if he has to line up at customs the way the rest of us have to, the way you see all those people lined up. I wonder if he has to do any of that. Um, again, it, it's just amazing to watch as, uh, almost like an oligarch. He's, he's preaches everybody's, you know, gets everything, but then he seems to have more than everybody else. Uh, and again, um, flying around and ignoring the nuts and bolts of government, as uh, Thomas Mulcair said. Uh, interesting, speaking of the NDP, uh, there's an interesting clip from yesterday's House of Commons where um, J- uh, Jagmeet Singh, who is, of course, the leader of the NDP, is attacking uh, the government, attacking Justin Trudeau for the lack of affordability, the rising cost of living, the inflation, all of that stuff that we're all complaining about but the prime minister just doesn't seem to be aware of it as he gets on his jet and flies off to california but it sounded kind of funny coming from jugmeet singh who uh, looks like his pants were full as he's yelling at the government that his own party is now propping up listen to jugmeet singh get laughed at in the house of commons yesterday when he tried to attack the government that he is supporting the speaker one out of every four canadian 
in this country is going hungry because they cannot afford their groceries. At the same time, corporations are making record profits. They're breaking record after record. Our plan is to tax the excess... I'm going to ask the Honourable Member to start from the top so that we can all hear his question. The Honourable Member for Burnaby South. I just mentioned that Canadians are hungry, and I hear laughter in the chambers. They should be ashamed of themselves. while corporations are making record profits and are responsible for one-fourth of the inflation that Canadians are experiencing. Our plan is to tax the excess profits of these corporations and put the money directly into the pockets of Canadians who need it. When will this government stop protecting the wealth of these corporations and start standing up for families who need help right now? The Honourable... All right, there you have it. And, uh, you know, again, I've said many times, Jugmeet Singh looks like uh, 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 a shadow of a man since supporting uh, the liberals in, in their deal that they have. You could say even the day that he was announcing it, he looked like he had seen a ghost. He wasn't aware he was doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And now, of course, getting laughed at in the House of Commons, largely by the right, of course, simply because how can you complain about the high costs and like, and here, you know, tax the rich companies and give it all to us. That, that'll solve the problem. I don't want handouts. I don't want any handouts. I want an opportunity to make my own money and build my own future. That's what I think Canadians and Canada is all about. That's why we've got a land of immigrants, because people come here for a better life. They can roll up their sleeves, they can work hard, and they can make a living here. People aren't looking for any more handouts. They want a solution to the problem. They want people to invest in a prosperous Canada and create jobs for us all so we can pay our own way. And for Jugmeet Singh and the NDP to stand up in front of everybody in the House of Commons after he just made a deal to keep this government in for a full term and then complain and then sit as a member of the opposition, uh, the opposition parties and complain about the high costs, which everybody will tell you is due to the high costs of energy, thus affecting supply chains, grocery stores, the pumps, everything. So I, I think it's time that a lot of parties, a lot of people, politicians, take a look in the mirror and uh, ask themselves what their objective really is here. Because it almost seems, uh, well, it is hypocritical for Jugmeet Singh to be trashing on the government that he is supporting. Uh, just my opinion, of course. One of the major issues uh, is affordability, the the ability to buy groceries, put a roof over your head, uh, fuel for your, uh, your car or to heat your home or do whatever you do and we've seen what housing prices have done in the last uh, year and a half two years or so especially with the uh, change in attitude over the covid uh, uh, global pandemic home prices in burlington have dropped 15 percent we've seen the same sort of thing happen uh, happen in in hamilton and other areas as well uh, obviously due to the increasing interest rates what does this mean for the market does it help uh, first-time buyers get into the market. Let's bring in Lou Piriano, president of the Real Estate Association of Hamilton Burlington, and with us now. Lou, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, 
Uh, thanks for inviting. So your thoughts on where the market is right now, Lou? Sure. Uh, well, about the same as it was in 1975. The CMHC report I read in 1975 said that uh, there's a, a supply shortage, uh, cost of construction and interest rates are rising, and uh, nothing has changed apparently. So <laughs> we're looking to government to uh, you know, do something and do something quickly. Uh, obviously, uh, the price, or sorry, the uh, the dropping in prices, uh, you feel, or, or is it the case of due to the rising uh, interest rates? Is that's what is that's what has slowed the market? Well, you know, you, you you quote statistics, and you know what Mark Twain said: "There's lies, damned lies, and statistics." <laughs> so, you know, you, you really have to be careful. There was an article in the Spec today by one of our colleagues that pointed out. Uh, in Burlington, for example, that neighborhood to neighborhood, it's different. Uh, higher price, the lower entry price houses, it's all different. And I really hesitate to uh, walk in there and say, uh, you know, the sky is falling. It certainly is not. I think that there is uh, some hesitation by some buyers. For example, I get calls, uh, somebody's got to sell a house, so they're not quite sure what to offer on my listing because they don't know what they're going to get for their listing. So this will all shake out in a couple of months, and uh, I think the market will settle. Uh, does the increased interest rates, uh, you know, the whole idea was to cool the market down, whatever that means, does that help first-time buyers get in? No, the, inter- the interest rates, no. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't yeah. help first-time buyers. That, that's hurting in a bad way. But, uh, you know, some of the lenders, I spoke to one yesterday that is lending up to 50 to 55% of gross income, uh, using that as as a marker for a percentage for what you can afford to buy. Now, if you're spending 50 or 55% of your gross income on a mortgage, that's 75% of your net income. It's like crazy high. So people are still out there and they're still trying to get it. Maybe they've got other jobs. Maybe, you know, they've, they've got other money. I don't know. But uh, the demand isn't going away. As you know, they're not making any more land. And whether there's a hiccup now or not is, is not relevant. What's relevant is to get a hold of one of our uh, members from the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington and say, hey, what's going on in my neighborhood? This is what I need. Uh, and unless you bought a house last month and you're selling this month, I don't think you really right. care you know, what's no, going good up point. and down. Good point. Lou, is this all about years and years and years of just not developing, years and years and years of saying no to building? You know, of government uh, ineptitude, really, is what it amounts to. You know, buyers want to buy, builders want to build, and yet we're in a situation here where there is no land available. Uh, we've been talking to MPs all in the last month or so and stressing that, listen, if you're working on legislation and it's about housing and it doesn't increase supply, don't waste your time. Move on to something else because that's the only thing that's going to alleviate this situation. You know, the government has land, the federal and provincial government have land that they could open up. That's not farms. Uh, in the uh, late uh, 80s, uh, sorry, 70s and 80s, we had the Home Ownership Made Easy program by the provincial government where they actually leased the land to the home buyer. So it was a great, successful program. What about the argument that, you know, we shouldn't be expanding anything, Lou? We should just all be building within the city limits. Is that going to be enough to, to add to supply? Well, not unless people change their attitudes quite a bit, because the young people that I think most of us talk to are saying, you know, uh, yeah, we'll do a starter in a 400-square-foot condo, but we're not going to have a dog and two kids in there. 
so, you know, they, they still want a backyard. COVID-19 changed people's perception of all of this? Well, of course. They, uh, they were cooped up in their houses, and they thought, hey, what can we do to make this better? And, oh, i got to work from home right now, so let me go find something bigger that I can put an office in. It really focused everybody to the property because they couldn't go anywhere else, and, of course, that's changing now. Lou Periano with us, uh, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington, talking about where the real estate, local real estate market is right now. Lou, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A small box of Kleenex now has 60 tissues. It had 65. Cottonelle Ultra Clean Care toilet paper was 340 sheets, now 312. Folgers Coffee downsized its 51-ounce container to 43.5, but still says it will make up to 400 cups. Experts say shrinkflation isn't new, but it proliferates in times of high inflation as companies grapple with rising costs for ingredients, packaging, labor, and transportation. Global consumer price inflation was up an estimated 7% in May, a pace that will likely continue through September, according to S&P Global. I'm Julie Walker. All right, it's Jilly Walker from the Associated Press talking about shrinkflation. Yeah, no pool needed here. Uh, have you noticed that your wagon wheel is more the size of a training wheel? Have you noticed that you used to have four rows of fudgios, now you've only got three? What the heck is that? Do they even do the double stuff cookies anymore? That's probably not allowed. Um, does it make consumers... Happy or more unhappy? <laughs> does, I mean, it's, I don't think you're pulling the wool over anybody's eyes here, but does it just aggravate them more? Would they rather just pay the higher price? I, I guess it depends who you ask. Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author. He is with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the program. Bruce, this is nothing new. I think we talked about this even before the global pandemic. Uh, what was it like then? What's it like now when it comes to, to shrinkflation? Yeah, I think it's really increased because, you know, during the pandemic, um, costs really hadn't started to go up significantly. Everyone was sort of in a bit of a, a chaos and turmoil. There was a lot of supply chain issues. But, you know, as a result of the pandemic and sort of the hangover from COVID and, you know, the war in Ukraine and all kinds of other things, labor shortages, raw material increases, you're seeing some significant increases in input costs across the whole supply chain with manufacturers, retailers, supply chain providers, Almost everyone has some kind of cost increase they're facing, and this is sort of the point where it makes its way down to the consumer level now, and that's why it's getting such a reaction. So obviously this must be a discussion in boardrooms where they're all sitting around doing, what do we do? Do we jack this price up 20% or do we give them less product? How do they arrive at these decisions? Yeah, it's a great question, and it is discussed you know, at the highest levels, and some of it is based on consumer research. If you're a sophisticated company, a fast-moving consumer good company, you'll do research and you'll find out. You'll also have some history because, as you mentioned earlier and your guest mentioned earlier, this, this comes and goes. You know, Probably the last time we saw this was around 2008, 2009 with the Great Recession, and uh, there's some history there. But companies will do that. They'll take a look at it, and they'll kind of make a decision based on, hey, are we better off just to put through a, uh, an increase of you know, 8% and everyone increases their prices 8% or is this not going to fly? And a lot of it has to do with price elasticity of demand for the product. There's some products that are really price elastic. So if you actually increase the price even a little bit, the volume drops off significantly. There's other products that are less elastic. If it's less elastic, 
then you can increase that price at retail. If it's elastic, then you might be one of those companies that says, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's reconfigure the packaging. You know, we'll take out one bagel and have five bagels instead, and that's our mm. way to go. Uh, you know, we always wondered how we got different uh, combinations of hot dog uh, buns in a package uh, versus the exactly, wieners in a package. Yeah. Maybe exactly. this was behind all of this way back when. Is there pressure from the retailers on on uh, producers to do this? Well, there's there's massive pressure from the retailers on producers to try to keep costs down. And you're right, and retailers will get involved, especially the big retailers like the Loblaws, the Metro, the Empire, the Walmart, Costco. They're going to work with suppliers and say, look, we think you should do this. We think you should come out with a, a five-pack instead of a six-pack based on what you know is happening here. So if you have a lot of clout as a retailer, you're going to almost dictate that. Certainly, too, if you control your own private label. So if you have some of the private labels like President's Choice, Loblaw actually controls everything that happens with that label. So they're the ones themselves who make the decision of what shows up on the shelf. Does this end up being more expensive for the producer because you have to change your production lines, you have to change your packaging lines, all for taking out a bagel or, or what have you, or is, is that uh, less significant? No, that's a good point, and that's what companies have to consider because, you know, it might be, to your point, it might be more expensive. You know, you have to change the packaging, you've got to retool the factory, you've got to change the boxes sometimes, you know, everything. Uh, sometimes get the product retested. So it, there is a, a cost difference when you do that. So they're going to have to look at each item individually and sort of look at the cost benefit, if you will. So what is the cost, you know, based on what we're going to gain or lose uh, if we increase the price versus we change the configuration? It's all dollars and cents, and it's all based on a cost-benefit analysis. This seems like it is more packaging and less product. And, it, you know, over the years, I think people have become irritated with that. Um, where does that discussion play into all this? Yeah, that's a real issue. I mean, you know what? Because packaging is expensive. In some cases, the packaging of a product is more expensive than the actual product inside. And uh, companies have to have to weigh that. They have to say, you know, what what are we going to save by shrinking down the quantity? Are we going to get a major savings in our packaging or is it going to cost us more? And you have to look at everything like shipping costs too, right? Because everyone is looking at the cost to ship product around. And, you know, if you can get uh, more in a container you know, that, or, or a tractor trailer, that might help you. Um, but if you can't, then, you're, you know, you're not really ahead of the game. So, so everything comes down to the minute detail, all the way from when the product is conceived, all the way to when it's consumed. They look at all the costs and they look at different scenarios in terms of what's the net impact on profitability and sales based on either scenario one, leaving it like it is, or scenario two, reconfigure it to a smaller package. What do consumers, what do customers think about this? What's their, what's their reaction to it? Well, you know, I think that customers, when they see it, a lot of people don't notice, to be honest. Yeah. You know, they only notice maybe when we talk about it in the media. A lot of people don't notice. Those who do notice, I think, think, you know what, ah, this is a little bit sleazy. You're trying to trick me a little bit. But they probably understand it. You know, it's funny because the opposite happens in really good times. What you'll start to see is you'll see brands come out with a larger portion and charge you more. So they kind of flex up and down. But I think consumers, for the most part, they understand it. A lot of people don't have time to think about it. Those who do think about it probably think it's a little bit sleazy. 
You talked about uh, when times are good. We we often see, you know, if you go to the Costco's or the Walmart, you can buy big bulk stuff, big party packs of things, whether it's yeah. toilet paper or whatever. Where does that fit into to all of this? Because, again, that's more product, less packaging. And we remember there was like a shortage of corrugated during the uh, pandemic. And even even like breweries were offering more cans in, in, their, in their boxes just because uh, it made sense for them. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly Costco and other people who participate in the bulk categories and the, in the sort of club pack categories, they're facing the exact same thing. Um, uh, but it's at a bit of different scale because they have, you know, probably less as a percentage of the product cost is packaging just because there's more product inside the package. So they're facing the same kind of challenges. It's just on a bit of a different economic base. So what advice do you have, Bruce, for uh, consumers that are trying to wade their way through this? Because obviously the price of groceries is a massive issue right now. What are your, what are your thoughts for our advice to guide people through this? Well, I think it's really tough unless you have a lot of time to really analyze it before and after. You know, most people are working one or two jobs in Canada right now, so you don't have a lot of time to think about it. I think, you know, if I, when I think of my own household budget, I'm trying to buy more private label. I'm trying to think about more frozen food. Um, I already shopped like other consumers at sort of discount grocers like, you know, no frills or food basics. So those are some of the things you can do. A lot of people are eating at home more instead of eating out. Uh, and that's bad for restaurants, right? But, you know, they have no choice. They're trying to stretch that dollar. So those are some of the things you can do in a nutshell is really sort of just change your, cons- your consumption habits a bit. Well, this you see this shrinkflation uh, changing, going the opposite, the pendulum swinging back, or does that take a better economy? Well, normally what will happen is they'll probably, when, normally when times go good, um, what they'll do is they'll add an, a larger pack. So they might have two packs. Like they might, have, they might leave okay. the one they have now that they've shrunk down in this time, and then maybe add a bonus pack or a larger pack for, for customers who want to carry that. And I've sort of seen that. But, you know, usually when you shrink down, it usually doesn't go up again. All right, Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, talking about shrinkflation, uh, paying the same price but for less products, smaller packages in some way. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Appreciate it. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As we slowly, um, hopefully, get out of this global pandemic known as COVID-19 here in uh, June of 2022, we have talked uh, over the last several months uh, about people who have uh, con- who have come down with COVID-19 and then what is often referred to as long haulers and the issues they have when trying to recover from this. Uh, many of us have had the uh, Omicron variant uh, as of, I guess, around Christmas time last uh, last year, beginning of December. I remember we were doing the Tree of Hope thing and it was like one of the first uh, um, at, uh, at Gore Park and it was one of the first things we've done in two years outside and then a week later it was like Omicron and we were back inside. Uh, but anyway, many are now studying the long-term effects of having this uh, being exposed to COVID-19 and uh, basically what has happened to a world that has uh, gone through this global pandemic. And whether it's uh, memory loss, attention, concentration problems, uh, this is what we're seeing as more study is being done. Let's bring in James Beck, Associate Professor, Industrial Organization Research Area Head, Psychology, University of Waterloo, and with us now. James, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I hope you're well as well. 
Yes, thanks so much. Many have come down with uh, COVID-19, especially during the Omicron uh, variant uh, stage of all of this. Uh, who ends up as a long hauler? Is, is, it, is there a common denominator here? Well, unfortunately, that's a little bit outside of uh, my expertise. Uh, I'm not a medical doctor. As you said, I'm an industrial psychologist, so that means I study uh, psychology in the workplace, uh, which brought my interest to for those who do become a long hauler, however that happens, um, what are the effects of that for those folks when they, they have to return to work? And what has that been like for them? Um, in our study, we looked at a sample of um, both people who had contracted COVID in the past and folks who had not contracted COVID. And we found that on average, the people who had contracted COVID reported significantly more problems with uh, what are called cognitive failures. And, and cognitive failures are, are, are essentially what they sound like. It's, it's problems with memory, um, paying attention to things like being distracted while a coworker is, is trying to give you some information. And, and also problems with, with actions at work that usually you would, you would perform well, um, but maybe you accidentally slip up and hit the wrong button or you uh, throw out a document you meant to save, things of that nature. Now, again, this may be outside your realm, but it, it, do you have any idea of what percentage of the people who come down with it end up like this? Or is, is that, again, outside your realm? You're just studying the, the people who actually become long haulers. Um, I, that is outside my realm. I can say from what I, I read in doing the literature review of this paper that it, 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 the estimates seem to be around one third of people uh, are reporting uh, these effects. Um, but our study was more looking at just the average across the two groups. Right. So we, we, we could say the group who had it experienced more of these effects on average than the group uh, who had not. Uh, one third, that's still quite a bit. Uh, so how long would these sort of symptoms laugh at last after the disease had passed or after perhaps they had tested neg- negative? So that's a, that's a good question. Um, one of the things we did in our uh, study was we we restricted our, our analysis to just the folks who had had COVID and, and we also asked those those folks when they contracted the disease and so we were able to uh, compute the number of days that had passed between um, the current study when they were reporting uh, on their cognitive failures and, and and how long it had been since they had COVID and there's quite a bit of variance in that in our sample um, the the shortest time period was about 40 days and the longest time period was was over 500 days so so well over a year and everywhere in between and how do important you is that oh i'm i just, sorry i just wanted to finish the thought to answer your question <laughs> um uh but we basically we found no relationship between how long that had had been and and, and the symptoms that they were reporting so um to me that indicates th- th- there's no evidence that people are getting better the longer time that has passed so how do you know when the fog is lifted how do you know when they're past this because you would think it would be so gradual you barely even notice no uh perhaps it is um all i can say is that from our data the folks who were reporting on this uh you know read these items things like i you know i failed to recall my work procedures i was easily distracted things like that and 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 the folks in the cognitive group were far more like or in the cog uh covid group were far more likely to say Yes, that resonates with me. I am experiencing that. I've experienced that in the last, you know, month on the job.
How do you decipher between what you're talking about and just general fatigue and exhaustion from going through two and a half years of this? Well, if it was just fatigue and exhaustion from going through it, um, you know, we're all going through it. The, the, uh, right. the entire society is going through it. Um, so that would apply to both groups in my study, both the group who had COVID and who had not. Um, so it, it is being driven by the folks who, who had actually contracted the disease. So what's next for this, James? Where do you move forward? Where, where's the, what do you study next? Well, an important limitation of this work is, is when the data were collected. We, we were collecting data in July of 2021, and the folks who reported having COVID, the vast majority reported having it before vaccination was available. So hmm. I can say with, 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 with pretty good certainty that most of these people were not vaccinated. Uh, and it's unclear what effect uh, vaccination has on this. It, it, maybe it's uh, uh, protective. Interesting. Wow. Fascinating. Long haul COVID and uh, what happens with it? Experiencing memory, attention, concentration issues. James Beck studying associate uh, studying it. Associate Professor, Industrial Organization Research Area Psychology, University of Waterloo. James, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me on. We knew that it, uh, well, I guess as of last month, May, the Prime Minister finally made the decision to keep Huawei out of Canada's 5G wireless networks. Uh, the industry already uh, taking off without the government decision, as most of our allies, if not all of them, have s- expressed uh, extreme concern about letting uh, the Chinese Communist Party, which, of course, pretty much uh, under the umbrella is every other company that it works uh, inside of China, not allowing them to be a part of this uh, highly sensitive situation uh, with that n- uh, nobody has really talked much about how leading canadian universities whether it's the university of british columbia whether it's uft in toronto mcgill carlton uh, university of calgary university of waterloo accepting money research money from huawei industries apparently huawei estimates about 10 percent of the company's annual r&d investment goes directly to partnerships with uh, canadian universities and research institutions to talk more about this charles burton senior fellow center for advancing canada's interests abroad at the mcdonald Laurier institute and with us now charles thank you for the time i hope you're well i am a sunny day is turning uh, <laughs> cloudy day is turning a bit sunny it's good to speak with you scott it's finishing off good that's for sure so how concerned should we be that uh, huawei technologies uh, giving universities canadian universities money for research well, the universities want the money. You know, they have a mandate yep. to spread knowledge, disseminate knowledge, and Huawei provides the funding that allows them to engage in in deeper research in areas of uh, telecommunications and other technologies. Um, that research, needless to say, is funded by you and me because universities don't, you know, rely on on government funding. And uh, we have had some situations. Uh, including at McMaster, where scholars working in these sensitive areas have not been forthcoming in their Canadian visa applications when they came from China, and turns out that they were, in fact, members of the People's Liberation Army research institutions. So the question is, if we have decided that Huawei uh, poses an unacceptable threat to Canadian national security, why are we subsidizing research for Huawei, which Huawei can then turn into 
um, you know, technologies that that uh, censor the inter- internet or facilitate facial recognition cameras or or do other things in China and in third world countries that the Chinese regime supports, strongman dictators and so on, here in Canada. Like, why why would we want to allow our Canadian taxpayers' dollars to subsidize that kind of work? So it really is a, you know, a, a kind of a paradox and universities want to freely exchange and develop knowledge and they don't have a mandate to protect Canada's national security or Canadian foreign interests and the fact that Huawei operates in a way that our government has deemed to be unacceptable in terms of exceeding its mandate to produce good telecommunications equipment to facilitating espionage on behalf of a regime that's increasingly hostile to our interests. So does Huawei own the research that they contribute that, that that is done at these Canadian universities? Absolutely. I mean, Huawei is not like a a benevolent uh, funder of research interested right. in promoting the bounds of knowledge, as you know you might see from uh, someone who's very wealthy gives an endowment to the university for pure purposes of of uh, of uh, supporting scientists who are breaking the boundaries of of knowledge in high tech or whatever huawei is doing this because it's a way for them to get information that they cannot develop themselves in china at a discount because the research that the scientists are doing on behalf of huawei which as you say becomes the intellectual property of huawei is being subsidized by canadians and the canadian scientists are absolutely tops at this kind of work. So Huawei would like to draw on those people to the extent possible for the least amount of investment on their part. Is this about money coming uh, into these universities or is this about personnel? People, you were using another example in regards to Mac and, and people's affiliation with, with uh, bad actors in China. Is this about personnel or is this about money? Well, I think that you've got both. I mean, certainly the universities need the research funds and want to get it from wherever they can get it. Um, you know, they're constantly complaining that they need more money to to develop their research programs. But you also have this aspect of China looking at different universities, whether it's Mac or Waterloo or, or um, you know, U of T or any, any university roundabout, and identifying that they are engaged in Um, sensitive areas of dual-use technologies, military-civil dual-use technologies, and deciding that they want to get hold of that that information to serve their own national priorities. And so they they send scholars to work with those in those labs. And, you know, the labs are happy to see, um, uh, you know, very strong Chinese young people coming in to assist them with their research. So, you know, from their point of view, it's a win-win. But Ultimately, they often invite the Canadians to go to China and maybe they end up providing their Chinese partners with classified information that they really shouldn't. And then the Chinese say, why don't you set up a lab here at this university and we'll pay you a whole whack of money. And maybe the Canadian scholar won't be uh, telling their own university that they're double timing or inform Revenue Canada that they have a significant new income stream. And, uh, and so you get a, and, and maybe the commercialization of, of their research, the Chinese say, well, we'll put you on the board and, and give you a share in the profits of, mm. of the commercialization of this work. There's just a lot of, of uh, temptations for scholars in these areas that the Chinese regime is, as we have seen over and over again, only too happy to extend to them. So, you know, so should a, this be, 
like Huawei and in the 5G, should we be either in or out? That's it. We're out. Well, I guess What's I mean, the solution the really here? is, you know, can you prevent Canadian scholars from going to China and, and transferring knowledge? Um, you know, it's very hard to prove that a scholar is handed over um, classified research data or data that that they shouldn't. And it's hard to prove if they've receiving benefits, significant benefits abroad, or even hard to prove that the fact that a scholar in, in Canada has participated in opening up a lab and is transferring technology to an institution in China is even illegal. So, you know, it's something that we really have to look at, but the universities want to protect their academic independence and they don't want the Canadian Security Intelligence Service telling them what they can mm. and cannot do. So this is really where it stands. And Huawei, you know, which operates from a completely different system, is able to exploit these uh, weaknesses in our democracy and relationship between governments and independent uh, research institutions. Beating us at our own game, sort of. Uh, Charles Burton with a senior fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, leading universities still receiving money from Huawei Technologies even after the 5G ban. Charles, thank you for the time. Be well. Great to speak with you again. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, I used to keep track of how many days it had been during this global pandemic, but are we out of it? The masking mandates dropped fr- uh, Saturday. Um, I don't think it's safe to say we're out of it, but we're certainly on the back end of it. And that's great news as things are starting to open up and more and more chatter of returning to work. This hasn't happened until before last Christmas when we we're all getting ready to come back and then Omicron hit and that all got put on uh, the back burner. So where are we going moving forward? Uh, it's interesting because if you listen to psychologists, they'll say, uh, you know, people are just going to say, nope, not coming back. And the ball's in their court. And with the shortage of employment or sorry, employees and such, um, it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. A, uh, a commercial real estate expert said uh, the office, downtown offices, that sort of thing, two to five years. It's dead for two to five years. What is it going to be? Do any of us know? Let's bring in Dr. Michael Halinski, Assistant Professor, Department of HR Management and Organizational Behavior, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you. So as we exit COVID-19, what are we going to see in the next six to, six months to a year, say? What is this going to look like? Do we even know? Well, first off, I'd probably preface it by saying that we're not really exiting anything anymore. I think we realized that there was a yeah. definitive start, but there is no longer going to be a definitive end. Uh, I, I think it is more of a, a transition or a subtle shift that we're going to be seeing. I think there's going to be more organizations that are, that are going to be adopting hybrid. And as, as these organizations have shown success, more are going to be adopting that. There's more and more organizations that are going to be looking for different options to try to attract uh, workers to their organization, but as well as workers back in the office, such as there's a a recent push for uh, compressed work week. So instead of doing the the eight hours a day, five days a week, they're doing 10 hours a day, four days a week. So organizations are are going to try to be a little bit creative, trying to get more and more people back into the office, or at least offer them more uh, attractive work arrangements for their individual lives. Some managers are saying that's it. That's all. Uh, it's time to uh, to get back to work, and we we want lots back to work. Is that the answer? Is that is that going to fly uh, <laughs> post pandemic? Why? Well, I think we've seen over the past couple of months that no, no, it is not going to fly. 
employees' voice is pretty loud. If, if they don't get what they want, they're going to leave. The turnover rates are higher than they've been in you know, the past hundred years. It's been the great resignation over the past year. Uh, and employees are talking with their feet rather than talking with their mouths in organizations. Uh, it was interesting. I read somewhere, uh, you know, they're yelling at the employees to go back, but a lot of the bosses don't want to go back either. Yeah, and to be honest, I, I think that they're struggling, right? The, these managers, and I feel bad for them, like middle managers in mm. particular, they're the ones that I believe have been most impacted by this because the employees, sure, they can work yeah. from home and they can just listen to their manager. But these middle managers, they're kind of squeezed in between the executives who are like the visionaries and, and they're the ones that are typically back in the office. They generally a little bit older in the organization other than if you're looking at the tech sector. So they have older kids, but these middle managers may have young kids at home. They're trying to balance employees who have a variety of different schedules. And it's just really a nightmare for these middle managers that there's not really a lot of good platforms out there for them to use. And they haven't been trained on this. Uh, so, they're really going in, into this hybrid and new environment uh, unprepared. You bring up a very valid point. Are we fully aware of what this new world will even look like, or is this trial and error? We'll see as we go. It, it's trial and error. It, pretty much like everything over the past two years uh, has been trial and error. This is just the, the next phase of it. Now we, you know, it's not the full remote work that we saw in the first couple years of COVID. Now we're entering the next span where it's going to be what I believe more organizations adopting this hybrid uh, approach. Uh, right now, obviously, as you said, and many experts have said, the, the ball is in the employee's court at this point. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to get people back. Uh, many, you see, uh, many uh, were hiring signs up no matter what the industry is. So there's obviously um, an employee shortage at this point. Does this change if that reverses and, and all of a sudden um, there's not an employee shortage? Yes, absolutely. It's all about uh, supply and demand. Right now, the power is, is with the employees. Uh, employers need them. Right? Employees, employers need workers. So, so they're going to be giving up some concessions, such as more remote work, more hybrid, uh, and maybe even paying more, compensating their employees more. Um, but if that does, and eventually it will change, uh, then yeah, there's going to be more employees pushed back to the office and then that'll be the next the next big change next big shift mm. but i don't i don't suspect that to be for the next couple of years uh how do we balance remote work with the great disconnect of not being there of not being seeing the people in the halls the brainstorming your boss whatever how, how do we manage that disconnect yeah i think that we've been struggling with that to be honest over the past couple of years there's been more people that have um and spending a lot more time with their families and friends and individuals in their neighborhood and individuals not related to their work. And that's really led to uh, a new conceptualization of what work-life balance means. And that's why a lot of younger, the younger generation are foregoing higher paying jobs to have more flexibility because they realize how much more important their life and their flexibility and their autonomy and making decisions on their own is rather than a couple extra dollars. So I do think that uh, their understanding, our, our understanding as a, as a society, but as well as individuals' perception of work-life balance has drastically shifted and it will continue to shift over the next couple of years through the, this hybrid um, momentum era. 
On that note, have we seen a decrease in Zoom calls compared to when this all started? Because at one time, oh, man, we were talking to everybody. You got regular meetings, regular this, regular that. And then as time progressed, that kind of waned a little bit. Maybe people fatigued from having being connected all the time. Uh, what are your thoughts on how our, uh, how our attitudes have changed from the beginning of this to where we are now? Yeah, I know that a lot of organizations are uh, adopting different practices associated with Zoom calls, such as not having Zoom calls on a Friday or not having them after a certain time frame. Uh, so there has been uh, a decrease in certain frequency of them. However, do we feel that they're still overwhelming and they're relentless and they're nonstop? Yes, we have learned some best practices, such as uh, Zoom meetings shouldn't be longer than 45 minutes. Uh, there we should have a, a five or a 10 minute gap between meetings. So we, we have learned best practices, which should have cut them down. Um, but do they have we, I, I can't speak to that because everything, every organization has their own culture and their own, their own set of practices. But I do think that we have best practices that should be implemented and whether they are or not, I can't speak to that. Fascinating discussion. What heading back to work will look like if we get there. Michael, uh, Dr. Michael Holinsky with his assistant professor, department, HR management and organizational behavior, Toronto Metropolitan University. Michael, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Have a good day. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's talk 900 CHML. We remember back to January 6th and uh, what happened at the U.S. Capitol when um, a whole pile of, uh, I guess, Trump supporters uh, decided to mob the place and and uh, breach security. And, and, and the rest is history, as they say. After an 11-month investigation, uh, more than 1,000 interviews, uh, the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack is now going to share what it knows in a primetime special. Is this out of the ordinary? Why choose this method? Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and the Washington diplomat, host of Just Ask the Question podcast, and author of Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism, and How to Revive It. Brian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing good. You forgot my uh, line of shoes that are coming. No, I'm I, kidding. I just, you know, is there anything we can add to <laughs> this grocery way, list for you, Brian? Fan? That was very yeah. funny. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, where do we, why do this? Why have this sort of presentation? I understand there's even a slick uh, a director or whatever behind all of this. What is the, what is the objective here today? Well, I, I think the Democrats want to convince people that uh, there's charges to pursue against Donald Trump and that they should be pursued immediately. Absent of that, their fallback position is to embarrass the Republicans particularly some of the incumbents so much that they lose in the fall and they hope that this helps, you know, therefore swing the midterm elections in the worst case scenario, nothing happens. Things go on as they are. And our two parties look like a bunch of kids fighting in a sandbox over, uh, you know, a, a cat dropping. So that's, uh, that's where we are in this country. How, how's yours? <laughs> <laughs> Don't even get me started. It's not, well, anyway, I'll leave it at that. What, what are we going to see tonight? Many have said it's just going to be a rehash, a recap of all the clips. They say we're going to see something new. What are we, what do you think we're going to see here, Brian? Well, we know we're going to see a, a filmmaker that was embedded with the proud boys. And we know we're going to see a, a Capitol uh, police officer testify. Those are the things that have already been reported on that. We know are going to happen. What is promised is 
is a bombshell, a smack in the face. And this is what I wrote about today in Salon is that the, the very thing is that the Democrats to be effective have to come out. And this first night out, they do have to hitch over the head. Now, whether or not they actually do it, that's another thing entirely. Was that me or you? I think I don't know. I don't know. It could be anybody. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, it's a, it's a hacker, it. Brian. It's a hack. That's what it is. Is there any way? Can this backfire? Yeah, it can backfire if if they come out tepidly and they don't come out with strong evidence that they not only have to uh, to appease the locals that is members of their own party, but their goal has got to be to to reach voters at the very least who are swing voters and even some of the uh, Republicans who are becoming disenfranchised with the Republican Party being such an authoritarian mess that it makes Hitler looks like, you know, a Boy Scout. So they're definitely in, in it to, to you know, that those are the people that they have to sway. If it fails, like I said, it's uh, you'll see it in the midterm uh, and they're promising that it won't fail and that tonight they'll deliver that uh, punch in the jaw. But they haven't said what it is. Uh, again, everybody knows what happened. Everybody Exciting saw television the of drama. This. Everybody saw all of this uh, happen shortly after January 6th if they weren't watching it live. Um, is it going to have any more of an impact, even if we do find out more information? Um, do you think this is going to have more of uh, is going to have an impact or is just going to look like a, a political charade? Well, look, I was there and you don't have to convince me. Yeah. And for those people who know, you don't have to convince them. So for them, they're either going to be bored, but if they're, you know, they're, they're promising a Watergate uh, hearing for the streaming age, thinking, thinking of it as a miniseries, you know, a six-part miniseries over a couple of weeks, and they're going to drop new episodes every night. That's kind of the, the vibe that they're trying to present. So they're trying to reach, if that's the case, they're trying to definitely reach a demographic, a demographic that's younger uh, than one that is older. But at the same so, time, most people consume knowledge through the television screen. So they're moving into the 21st century and trying to slickly produce things. But, man, it's not a good place to be for politics when it's reduced to a Hollywood show. Uh, Fox uh, appears the only network not covering this. What's their reaction? <laughs> it's all a hoax. Yeah. <laughs> Move on. It was, it was you know, that's 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 the marching orders from everyone on that side of the aisle is that it was a hoax and move on. So at the end of the, is is this just a one-time hit or is this going to be a series of these? I believe they've scheduled six over two weeks. So, uh, wow. So we will literally have to watch this like a mini series. Yeah, that's what they're, well, they're hoping it, it, look, they have taped interviews with Ivanka. They've taped interviews with other people, stuff that hasn't been seen in public. And they put together all that testimony and they're going to present it to the American people. Their goal is to prove that Donald Trump should be indicted and their wish is that uh, they sway the Department of Justice and things are filed against him, preferably before the midterms and if to their benefit. But we'll see. At the same time, like I said, if they don't get that, then they just want to sway voters uh, away from the Republicans in the fall. And that's the real challenge. What what are they going to do tonight? Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and The Washington Diplomat. Brian, as always, this should be fascinating to watch. Thanks for the time. I'm sure we'll chat soon. (laughs) Have fun, buddy. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It seems everybody's talking about the cost of living. Everybody's talking about the price of energy, fuel, which is driving the cost of everything up, except the Prime Minister. Interesting piece in the Toronto Star today, an opinion piece, uh, taking a look at the Prime Minister's progressive uh, policies and his argument that these policies will ultimately be prosperous for Canada. Uh, And is that the case? The headline is uh, Trudeau's progressive values. Values are great, but they won't guarantee economic prosperity. Oddly enough, Bill Morneau, for former finance minister of Canada, said recently uh, that Justin Trudeau is spending too much time on the great re- uh, redistribution of wealth and not enough time on Canadian prosperity. Earlier today, Thomas Mulcair, former leader of the NDP, said uh, Justin Trudeau is ignoring, quote, the nuts and bolts of government and instead is jet-setting around for uh, the appropriate photo op. Uh, joining us to chat about all of this and where we are going as a country, Eric Cam is with us, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you are, too. Uh, it's interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, this discussion seems to be getting more more uh, traction. You know, people have talked about in the past that uh, there's a redistribution of wealth here. It's not so much about Canada's success anymore. Now we've got even uh, newspapers like the Toronto Star writing editorials on this. Is this discussion changing? Is this getting more traction now? Well, it is getting more traction. Um, let me start this discussion because, as I was saying before, Books and books and books could be written on what we're going to talk about for the next five minutes. And so I really believe, because I never lie to your listeners, that I come out of the closet on an issue. I am not a progressive economist. Progressive means socialist. It means nothing more and nothing less. If you are a progressive, it means that you want to progressively make rich people poorer and poor people wealthier. And I have to say, while that does sound to be some uh, utopian goal to some people, for those of us who actually live on the planet, we try to worry about disposable income for all people. And we try to get the economy to grow, not too fast, but not too slow. And what's going on now is that I'm agreeing with people like Thomas Mulcair, which is making my head hurt, because the (laughs) prime minister is not, he's not at all addressing economic issues. Mr. Morneau is right. We are in the most unstable economic time that we have been in for the last 30 years. The number of people who are one paycheck away from insolvency is to a percentage that I don't even want to announce anymore. The economy is in very, very rough shape. I don't have to tell anybody who goes shopping that we're in an inflationary spiral. So this is a very long-winded way of saying the prime minister has got to focus. For the first time in his leadership life, he's got to realize the difference between being the leader of fantasy land and the leader of a country that is in very rough economic shape, Scott. Can he do all of that and still sell climate change? Because that's what it's about for him. And again, you can't argue with that. Most Canadians think there's, it's an issue we have to deal with. It's just they're uncertain, can't agree on how to deal with it. Can he kept, keep selling? I mean, he's in, he's in California today signing a big, you know, a book like Donald Trump used to sign and show it off that, hey, we've come to some sort of agreement with California. And then, you know, back here in, in, in reality, we're all, we're all, you know, dying from high energy prices. Can he kept sell, can he keep selling climate change as a distraction and just move on from this because that seems to be what he's doing well that's right because he's a true progressive 
and he doesn't want to get to the issue at hand. What he's worried about is, again, he is worried about income distribution. He's worried about one small slice of the economic pie. Income redistribution. Can I take money away from those who have, in his mind, too much of it and give it to those who don't have enough of it? And nobody wants anybody to starve. But all of these things that he's touting right now is, is the equivalent of fiddling as Rome burns. He's going off on things like climate change and carbon taxes and things like that. Listen, maybe these things have a place in our society, but they don't today. They can't, Scott. We have too many people who are going to put the keys to their homes under the door and walk away into financial peril. Do you think those people right now, those people that cannot afford to put gas in their car or food on their shelf, they, you think they care about green energy right now? And what is he offering them? A discount on an $80,000 car? It is a joke. I am. I'm, you know what? It really makes me sad because the one thing I worry about is people living and living their best lives. And I don't say that in some esoteric, weird way. I want people to be able to afford their life. Economic health is mental health. Nothing more, nothing less. And this prime minister is completely out to lunch on the fact that, eco that economic health right now is very, very sick. Canadians want an opportunity. I don't think they want a handout. Um, you talked about socialism and, and this being his template. If he continues with that, does the middle class get, does it, does it improve life for the middle class or does the middle class decline? Every class declines, Scott. Every class. What he is doing right now is nothing resembling how you make a modern capitalist economy grow. And, you know, I hear some people that we used to call whack jobs doing these op-eds in newspapers going, what is Trudeau trying to do? Is he trying to undermine capitalism? And for the first few years of, of his run, I said, no, that's ridiculous. But, yeah. you know, I got to tell you, when you look at what's going on, when you look at the macroeconomic indicators that StatsCan puts out, there's not a lot of better conclusions right now. He's either trying to undermine capitalism or he's asleep at the switch and somebody better have him committed. But right now we are doing absolutely nothing nothing to address the real problem in society and that is the fact that prices are going up too fast and eroding everybody's wages and everybody's income again people talked about that before not as much they certainly aren't uh, they certainly are talking about it more now what does it say when an article like this an op-ed appears in the toronto star saying eh, i don't know if it's going to guarantee economic prosperity well, I mean, and look who's doing it, right? The Toronto Star, a very left-wing newspaper, if you want to go back over the years. So now you have even some of the left-wing media, the left-wing literature going, what the heck is going on here? We are counterintuitive to where we are as a society and where we are as an economy. And that should scare people. When the Toronto Star start to question left-wing politics, I would be, and I am, very nervous. Eric Cam with us, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University in the Star. A look at prime ministers, the prime minister's progressive policies, and his argument that they prove prosperous. And this article questioning that. Eric, thank you for the time. Be well. You too. Stay healthy, Scott. We were certainly talking a lot more about mental health uh, than we used to in the old days. This was even prior to COVID-19. Uh, however, going through this global pandemic, it has made us all in heightened awareness of all of this as 
as we experience various things uh, in the last two and a half years of this uh, uh, social experiment that we've been going through and how to come out the other side. Many thought, well, this will be over in no time, won't change anything. It's pretty tough to go through something for two and a half years and come out the other end Um uh, the same, that's for sure. So we've talked a lot about anxiety and such, and especially not only in young, in, in, uh, adults and such, but in young people. How does this affect the kids? The kids have gone through a lot of change as well. A new study from McMaster University Oxford Center for Child Studies says addressing anxiety as early as kindergarten could reduce its harmful impacts and that signs of anxiety at that age should not be ignored. I understand a lot of this research was even done before, uh, the global pandemic. Let's bring in Dr. Magdalena uh, Janus, Professor Psychiatry, Behavioral Neurosciences, working with the Oxford Center for School uh, for Child Studies at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences, McMaster University. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm well. Thank you very much for inviting me. So this, a lot of this information was gathered prior to the pandemic. Is that accurate? That is correct, yes. You have to wonder what it's like now. Does that even make you more concerned? Absolutely. But, you know, um, the best way to find out whether some unpredictable event that we really haven't had precedence uh, in experiencing um, has made a, in, an impact on something, in this particular case, mental health of the youngest children, is to have the same measurement, to have a, a certain baseline right. that was um, collected in, um, in one way and then be able to apply um, it after or mid. You know, I, I started, I used to say, post-pandemic, but it seems like we're not really coming out of it yet. No, we just learned to live with it, I guess. Right. But um, so the fact that we have this multi-year data collected with the early development instrument through teacher ratings, I think gives us a really good baseline to be able to assess to what extent uh, the pandemic actually had impact on the youngest learners. Is it safe to say the longer anxiety is left to be treated or untreated, the worse it, it gets? Or does it fix itself, work itself out with younger people? I really don't like when people uh, kind of feel that, you know, children will outgrow something. Hmm. Because I think that's, that's how we used to treat mental health. It's, it's, yeah. it's something, you know, let's ignore it. Or boys will be boys and, you know, girls will cry. And this is all um, really wrong. Um, every symptom of distress should be noticed. Uh, if and our study looked at a, a lot of symptoms together, so it's not we didn't just ask the kindergarten teachers, "Oh, do you think this child is anxious?" No, there were eight items, and we made sure that um, the children, the, the two point six percent of children who were um, expressed those um, symptoms of anxiety were rated as having them consistently and many of them, right? So if your child is sometimes shy, that's fine. It's not what we're talking about. But at the same time, it really is important to acknowledge that shyness. It's really important to acknowledge that sadness. It won't turn into anxiety, but it's important to acknowledge your child's feelings. You talked about those eight uh, eight identifiers. How do you tell if someone may be experiencing anxiety? What are, what are the, uh, what should you be looking out for? Okay, so the, the study that we did looked at the um, teachers' observations in their classrooms of, uh, of children with whom they had daily interactions for at least six months at the time when they were completing this instrument. So there's eight behaviors uh, they had to rate, um, things like, as I mentioned, being shy, uh, not able to make decisions, uh, cry a lot. But these things had to happen on a, on a kind of consistent basis. Um, 
So I can't tell you exactly whether it's a child is experiencing anxiety. What I can mm-hmm. tell you from our study is that they were showing symptoms of it. So sometimes uh, they could be mistaken for, um, you know, transitory feeling of discomfort or unfamiliarity. But at any, um, whatever they represent, so they, they won't always represent actual anxiety disorder, right? They associated right. with anxiety disorder, but won't necessarily always represent disorder. But they should be acknowledged and, and um, helped at any given point in time when they are seen in children. Uh, what is the advantage of starting that early, and should it be even more? I mean, why kindergarten? Oh, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think it should be even earlier. Uh, the reason we're measuring it in kindergarten is that uh, we really don't have a very good way to measure children at this scale, a population scale, which means that we basically um, measure every child um, prior to school entry. Um, and I think what our um, research program shows is that there are enough um, signal enough attention enough frequencies it happens often enough that really attention should be given earlier on but even kindergarten is a good point to start because children enter you know on a very Mm. um specific pathways when they start school um they are uh, they are in the educational setting so um educators have an opportunity to compare each child with the other there is potential for support i think that's really very important and there's potential for children to actually access the help that they need. That doesn't happen all that much. We know that very well. Uh, but we hope that with um, being able to show that um, there are children who really need quite a lot of support, um, not all of them, but some of them, uh, that will prevent um, these problems to escalate. And I agree with you. I mean, what you asked before, and I didn't quite answer, um, I do believe that, um, that research shows that pretty much everybody who is diagnosed with anxiety in youth, uh, had some symptoms earlier on, but they may not have been recognized. Uh, is there common denominators here in, in, in those that you've discovered? Is, do the parents play a role here, for example? Well, I, I can't tell you that my study showed that in any way. We haven't mm. uh, had any information on parenting. And I right. would be very, very reluctant to uh, to judge or, or say that there is any research that shows that, um, you know, any parenting behavior may uh, may influence. I, I think there is research that shows that um, um, intervention programs that focus uh, teaching parenting skills um, do have positive impact on children. So from that perspective, I think that's, that's, that's where the evidence is. I guess my point, if parents are anxious, chances are the kids are going to be. Well, it could also be, could be genetic. It could also mm. be observational. You know, we all right. know that children, you know, repeat what we do, right? So, yeah. um, and it could be of, of any behavior. Uh, so absolutely. Yes. What advice do you have for parents who may be uh, c- uh, concerned about this in their child? I think I would um, probably re- re-emphasize what I said earlier, that please do not dismiss. And it, I have to say, you know, I'm not a clinician, so you know, if you wanted, mm-hmm. if your child had a diagnosed anxiety, you wouldn't be coming to me. So you, you might want to invite other people um, uh, on your program to talk more uh, about this. But do not ignore it, but also do not over 
um, don't overdo the attention uh, when the child is um, is showing signals of uh, anxious behavior or, or shyness or, or or crying too much or something like that. I think what is really important to remember that the children who we have now in kind of this five years of age, uh, they have very much less chance of practicing those behavior, like behaviors of even adjusting to each other, playing with each other in in a classroom, testing each other's limits because they've been spend more time with their families uh, in a different environment than children in pre-COVID cohorts. So be patient with them. If you see that something interferes with everyday life, that's usually the clinical mm. kind of um, judgment where it comes in, that we, it really doesn't let the child lead a normal life of learning and play, then that's the time to ask to, to turn into your um, health service provider, probably family doctor first, I would suggest. Dr. Magdalena Janus, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences, working with the Oxford Center for Child Studies in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. Uh, children with anxiety, obviously, the quicker we, we recognize it, the better. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Good luck with this moving forward. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the uh, Scott Radley Show, Sasquatch Spotter, uh, and columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. You can read the Sasquatch story there. Uh, Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. How are you? I'm doing very well. Where did you get the shot of uh, whatever that was in the spec of, you know, it's, it's a Sasquatch. Do uh, you want to explain yourself here? So... For those who haven't seen the piece in the paper uh, or online, I wrote a thing on election night about how it's so rare that conservatives in this city win more than one seat at any time in the provincial election. You have to go back to 95, I think, the last time conservatives had more than one one win. And I said, you know, you, you, you see Sasquatches in Gage Park more often. Well, I get a note from someone saying, how did you choose that line to use? Because I saw one in Gage Park. Well, yeah. Scott, look, we've had COVID, we've had death, <laughs> we've had despair, we've had lives overturned. When someone tells you that after two years of what we've been through, you say, okay, I'm, I'll bite, I'm going to follow up, tell me your story. It's not a Sasquatch, it's just somebody hasn't been to the barber in a while. Well, except this, now look, uh, go read it, because it's better that way, but this person, to this day, says, and there were two of them, one of them has now said, no, I don't think it was. Uh, but the other one says, to this day, I know what I saw. I studied anthropology in university. I know the difference between a guy in a suit, in a costume, and a non-human. And this was a Sasquatch. So if you're at Gage Park, be looking around because who knows? You might see evidence of a Sasquatch. I, I just love the idea that we could, like the tourist industry, could latch onto this, could glom onto this. And we could sure. have tours, like Sasquatch tours and T-shirts. Like the Loch Ness Monster. Right. Right. Yeah, there's there's like a Loch Ness monster in Okanagan Lake in BC. I forget what yeah. it's called, but yeah, yeah same thing. They, they, the, uh, the, uh, Oingo the, Boingo, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Ogopogo. Yeah, Pogo. Yeah. No, that's there not. you go. Well, there there is, but yeah. So yeah, we could come up with a different name instead of Sasquatch. Just call it Gagey. <laughs> Gagey. Has anybody seen Gagey running through Gage Park? <laughs> well, oh man, 
especially seeing a lot of appearances uh, reported on a on a weekend, I'm guessing, on a Friday night or a Saturday night. But there you go. All right, I've been meaning to ask you about this, and it sort of came to a head today. Uh, PGA uh, up against Live Golf, which I guess is a uh, a a tour that's been started um, by some non reputable people, and the PGA is upset and has suspended 17 players. What is this all about? Well, so Live Golf, which is a Saudi-backed new startup golf tour, is throwing hundreds of millions of dollars around to lure top players to leave the PGA Tour, essentially, and come and play in it. And they've got people like Phil Mickelson and Bryson DeChambeau now and Dustin Johnson and a bunch of others, Patrick Reed. And, you know, like there are, he won't confirm it, but there are rumors that Phil Mickelson was paid $200 million guaranteed to come and play in this thing. Well, so, I mean, it, it's one of these things of, okay, um, you're not going to be able to play on the PGA Tour because they're now saying if you go to this, you're out. And you probably will lose endorsements here, and your reputation may be gone, and your legacy in North America as a PGA Tour pro may be over. But if someone's going to pay you $200 million, do you care? Yeah, who cares? So are these and, 17 done? Will they ever be back? Well, so they're suspended indefinitely by the PGA Tour. And what that means is anybody's guess. I mean, potentially, like let's say this thing catches on, and let's say more and more golfers decide to bite, you know, at a $100 million offer or something. Um, you may see if this thing fizzles out down the road because the people behind it decide that they've lost interest in golf or whatever else, if there's enough of them, you might see the PGA Tour say, you know, we've got to let these guys back in because right. there's just so many of them. But if there's only this 17 or 20, and some of them are along in their careers where, like, Mickelson is no longer a sure. competitive golfer. Let's say, there's, let's say there's 10 guys who are top players in the world. Hmm, maybe that indefinite suspension to make a point, maybe they never come back and play again. But again, it comes back to the question of what matters to you. Like if you're playing golf professionally or any sport, are you doing it simply because you love what you're doing so much and you grew up as a fan of Tiger Woods and you want to be just like him? Or are you doing it to make a living and put, you know, your family in a nice house and, and drive a good car and, you know, have, have financial security? And I think a lot of it depends on, as you stated, where you are in your career, I guess. Well, uh, probably, but even, you know, Mickelson has made, now he's lost a lot too, but he's made tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, I, I, I would like to say, Scott, that, you know, I would for sure, unquestionably, if they came, if another, like another radio station comes to you and says, Scott Thompson, we want you to come. And, you know, the, the, the background of the people there is not necessarily all great, and there's some questionable stuff going on, but we're going to pay you $3 million a year to, to do an afternoon show for us. You know? I'm gone. See you later. Smell you later. The door won't hit me on the way out. Th th it would be very <laughs> difficult not to. It would be very difficult not to listen to that and not to take it. And then whether or not you regret that down the road when – you your reputation or your legacy is not there or people talk about you negatively who knows but you know what 200 million bucks is 200 million bucks all right scott radley with us host of the scott radley show you'll hear more about the gauge park sasquatch i'm sure and you can read more in the hamilton spectator scott have a great show thanks for the time as always much appreciated 
Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the two wells for uh, the two wills for producing. And Dave Woodard in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Frank called in to say, so you may now find smaller product packaging with bigger prices. Yes, some of us remember shrinkflation when we adopted the metric system in Canada. When packages went down to the lower end of the conversion, same thing with gas, $2 a liter, it's creeping up to that $8 a gallon. Where's my wagon wheel? Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.